Morning, church. Have you ever been surprised with good news? Someone calls you to tell you she's engaged or has a new job or is expecting a baby. There's a rush of excitement, spontaneous laughter, and the feeling of joy. This week, we light the joy candle in the Advent wreath and remember the joy felt by those who first heard the good news of Jesus' birth. We're reading Luke 2, 8 through 20. And there were shepherds living out on the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels left them and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord had told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Thanks, Josiah. Appreciate that um, reminder that joy has come in Christ, that he is the one who has come to make our joy complete, that, that the king, as we've been talking about, Advent is all about the coming of the king, and because it's about the coming of the king, the king who loves us, the king who has died for us, the king who has risen again to give us life, it's also about the coming of joy. The fact that joy has, has stepped into our world, that joy has a name and a face, that joy um, was born in a feeding trough outside of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and has come here for our life, for our good, for our salvation. And as you, as you heard Josiah say, today is the third Sunday of Advent, this time when we look back at the first coming of Jesus and we look forward to the second coming of Jesus and, and we long for him to come into our hearts anew. Uh, welcome, guys, to Christ Community Church. Welcome to those of you guys watching online. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm so excited to look today at, at the coming of Christ and to look specifically at how we respond to Jesus. Because when God stepped into our world, when the king came to take back a world that was broken, a world where, where sin and death and pain and disease were ruling, a, a world that was lost in darkness. He didn't just come as some sort of military ruler or some sort of, of political leader. He came as a baby lying in a manger, a baby born in a barn in a, in a town somewhere called Bethlehem. And this king's birth was not like a typical royal birth. I mean, think about typical royal births. There was no birth announcement. There, there, there were no newspaper articles. There was no feature on TMZ. If you've seen The Lion King, there's no, you know, Simba, or whatever the monkey's name was, I forget his name, holding Simba over the pride land saying, here's your king. There wasn't even a Facebook post about the birth of the king. 
Almost no one knew that the king had come. But there was one pretty spectacular way that God announced the birth of his son. He did it through a star in the sky, a star that announced the birth of the king. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to read about that in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So here's what the word of God says about shortly after Jesus was born. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time that the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So odds are, if you've grown up around church, odds are simply if you've grown up in America, you've heard this story before. You've heard this story about the wise men following the star that led them to Jesus. And there's all kinds of speculation as to what this particular physical phenomenon was. Every couple of years, a group of NASA scientists comes out with this theory about what caused the star of Bethlehem. Uh, Johannes Kepler, who was the founder, not the founder, the, um, the discoverer of the laws of planetary motion, said that he thought it was caused by a supernova. Some people think it was caused by a comet. Some people think it was caused by a certain alignment of the planets. Um, I'm not a, a scientific genius. I have no idea what caused the star at Bethlehem, but I do know who caused it. And I do know why he caused it. Have you ever, as you've been reading the Christmas story, have you ever stopped to ask that question? Like, why did these guys care about this star? Why did these wise men, these astrologers, these, these pagan rulers come seeking the king of the Jews? And why did, they, why did they simply assume that because there was a bright star in the sky, that, that that meant that the king of the Jews had been born? Well, they knew that because they had read the Bible. Or they had at least heard a story from the Bible. These wise men were most likely from Persia or Babylon, both, both of which had large Jewish populations. And so they had been exposed to the Hebrew scriptures. And there's this fascinating prophecy in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus, there's this prophecy, and it says this. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheph. This is actually an oracle from a pagan prophet by the name of, ba by the name of Balaam. So if you read the book of Numbers sometime, it's a fascinating story. And somehow these magi, these, these Persian rulers, these pagan astrologers have heard this prophecy, and now they have come seeking the king of the Jews. Now, I find that fascinating 
Because largely what you see in the scriptures is that Jesus' own people missed him. But these pagans saw him because they had been on the lookout for him. And I wonder, I wonder if we're honest how many times that's true of us. I wonder how many times God is trying to show us something, but we're simply not paying attention. I wonder how many times God puts the proverbial supernova in the sky, but I'm just too busy going about my daily business and I end up missing the king. And I want to encourage you this Advent season to be mindful, to to pay attention. God is always speaking to us. God is always trying to show us himself. God is always trying to draw us to himself. That's the point of Advent. We just sang about it. Let every heart prepare him room. Preparing our hearts and our minds and our eyes to be open to Jesus showing himself to us. This passage that we're going to look at today is all about how we respond to the coming of the king. Now, the fact is that if we're honest, most of us don't like the idea of a king. Most of us recoil from that idea. I mean, we are Americans, okay? We don't like kings. We're okay watching The Crown on Netflix. We're okay watching some clips of a royal wedding. We're fine with the idea of royalty as long as it stays on the other side of the ocean. But we don't want a king getting anywhere within 3,000 miles of us. But here's the thing, friends. Whether we want to admit it or not, there will always be some king in our lives, There will always be something that reigns supreme. There is always something that is ultimate. There is always something that is the center of gravity in our lives. It might be our families. It might be our bank accounts. It might be our politics. It might be our careers. It might be our sexuality. It might be any number of things. But there is always someone or something auditioning for the role of king in our lives. There is always something ultimate. So when the true king comes, the question becomes, how will we respond to him? Because recognizing him as the true king means removing all of those other false kings from the throne of our hearts. So that's the question I want to pose to us today. How will we respond to the king? Yes, yes, as Christians, we believe that Jesus came, that the king came 2,000 years ago, but how will we respond to him? There are three possible ways we see in this passage that we can respond to the coming of the king. First way that we can respond to him is we can respond with hostility. Hostility. Uh, We see this in the way that Herod responds to to Jesus. Look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Like, think about how awkward this conversation is. Wise men show up, they go up to the king, and they say, hey, where's the king? And that's an extremely disconcerting question if you are the king, because you're thinking, you're looking at him. But Herod was not the rightful king of the Jews. And actually, if you read history, you find that he was always deeply insecure about that fact. Herod was a puppet king who was installed by the Roman Empire to rule over Judea. He was not the rightful king of the Jews. In fact, if you were a faithful Jew in Herod's time, you were waiting for the Messiah to come because when the Messiah comes, he's going to kick Herod off his throne and he's going to take his rightful throne. And we know from other historical sources that Herod was obsessively worried about that. He was always afraid that someone was going to try to steal his throne. He was so paranoid about it that he actually had his entire family killed. 
As we're going to see next week, he was so desperate to hold on to his throne that he tried to kill Jesus. And in the process, he literally slaughtered every baby boy under the age of two in Bethlehem. He was willing to do whatever it took. No matter how evil, no matter how destructive, no matter how demonic to hold on to his own power. It's one of the truly bad guys of history. But in moments of honesty with myself, I don't know if you and I are really that different from Herod. Now, we don't have the kind of power to have people put to death if they oppose us. But how often do we want to just hold on to our own power so strongly? And how often are we willing to walk on other people or to push other people out of the way who get in the way of our own autonomy, who get in the way of our own power, who get in the way of us being the king of our own lives? Sometimes we even do that with God, or we try to. This is the way some of us respond to the king. We hear about Jesus. We hear the claims that he makes on our lives. He comes in and he says, I'm the king and I'm calling you into my kingdom. I'm calling you to find life and joy and hope and light in my kingdom. But in the process, I'm calling you to come down off the throne of your life and give me my seat back. And many of us don't like that. And so some of us reject him outright. And we simply say, you know what? I'm not going to believe in that. I'm not going to embrace that because I want to be my own king. But most of us, if we're honest about it, we're actually a lot more subtle about it, especially for the kind of person who goes to church. Most of us don't reject him outright, but what we do is this, we negotiate with him. We think, I'm going to lay down some boundaries with the king here. We say, I tell you what, Jesus, um, I know that you say that you're the king, but let's negotiate here. You can have my Sundays. I'll show up at church, I'll, I'll sing the songs, I'll listen to the guy ramble as long as he doesn't go too long. Jesus, you take Sunday, and I'm going to take the rest of the week. Or, or how about this, Jesus? I'll, I'll sweeten the deal a little bit. Um, I'll let you have my sexuality. I'll, I'll give you that part of my life. You can be the king there, but I'm going to hold on to my money or, 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 or whatever else it is in my life. I'm going to be the king over that area of my life. And it looks different for each and every one of us, but we all have this tendency to try to negotiate with the king. We all have this tendency to try to reserve the right to tell him where he can and cannot have power. But if that's what we're doing, if we're carving up the kingdom of our life and setting up boundaries, if we still have veto power over the king, then he's not the king. We are. And so the question each and every single one of us needs to ask ourselves today is the same question that these wise men came and asked Herod. Where is the king? Who is the king in my life? Am I the king or is Jesus the king? Am I the one ruling on the throne of of my life or have I stepped aside and allowed Jesus to take his rightful place as the king in my life? Herod responded to Jesus with hostility. But there's another way to avoid Jesus. There's another way to miss the coming of the king. You can respond with hostility like Herod, or we can respond with indifference like the religious rulers. Indifference. Look at verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, it's fascinating here, because if you look at these religious leaders, these these chief priests, these scribes, they have spent their entire lives studying the scriptures. 
They knew the right answer. They nailed it. Herod said, where's the king going to be born? And they say the Messiah's going to be born in Bethlehem. The great king, the son of David, the one who's going to reign forever, the one who is going to set us free and set up his kingdom of life and joy and hope. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about five miles from Jerusalem. But not one of these guys bothered to go and see the king. See, friends, it is possible for us to know all about Jesus and still miss him completely. You can spend your entire life in church. You can go to Bible college and seminary. You can be a pastor. You can be a religious scholar and never encounter Jesus. We become so over-familiar with the truth about Jesus that we never actually encounter him, that we never actually worship him. And this is a real danger for those of us who are in church on Sunday or watching a church service online. We become so comfortable in our religion that we don't see our need for a savior. For many people, religion is actually a way of keeping God at a distance. It's a way of managing God. It's a way of putting God in our debt so that now God owes me and now God's on my side. And that allows me to manage my life without needing a savior. Flannery O'Connor, in one of her stories, has this character named Hazel Motes, which is just a great name. Hazel Motes, and she says this about Hazel Motes. She says, he knew the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. He knew the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And friends, I am concerned that that's how many people in the church lived. Now, should we seek to avoid sin? Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. We should seek to avoid sin. But if we're not careful, Christianity can become just a set of rules that we keep. It can become just a helpful set of principles for living instead of a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And we try so hard to look good and godly and moral on the outside that we numb ourselves to the reality of our deep sin and brokenness and our desperate need for a savior. And Jesus can become just a theoretical construct in our heads instead of a living, breathing Savior who we encounter personally. See, when it really comes down to it, these religious leaders missed the king because they didn't want him to come. They had a really good gig going for themselves. They were powerful religious elites. They had a vested interest in maintaining the status quo. They knew that the Messiah was going to come and bring in a new kingdom, and they didn't want that. They didn't want the Messiah coming along and messing up what they had going, so they ignored him, and they simply went about their religious business as if nothing had happened. And so I got to ask myself, as some sense of a religious leader, we've got to ask ourselves as, as church-going people, as people who, who have some, some semblance of faith, we got to ask ourselves, is that where I am today? Like, maybe I know the truth about the, about the king. Maybe I know it in my head. Maybe I even know it in my heart of hearts, but I don't really want him messing up the status quo in my life. I don't want him rocking the boat. So you can resist the king through outright hostility, or you can resist the king through indifference. Herod hated Jesus. The religious leaders ignored Jesus. But the wise men, they worship Jesus. That's the third response, and that's the response that Jesus calls us to, worship. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before him until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Oh, that verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That is an extremely redundant statement. And it's intentionally redundant because it's, he's, he's grasping for words. He's saying they were overwhelmed with joy. That's what worship is. Worship is not a perfunctory religious ritual that we perf- perform. Worship is an explosion of joy. True worship is when we encounter the king who has come to save us from our sins, the one who has come to set all things right and to make all things new, the one who brings joy into our sadness, the one who brings hope into our despair, the one who brings light into our darkness. And we fall down and we worship him and and we pour out the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh of our lives. We pour out our worship to him even when it's costly. Because he is worth it. Because he is better than anything else in heaven or on earth. Because in Jesus, we have met someone worth losing everything for. Now, it's really interesting. These wise men, as we've said, were not Jews. They were most likely Persians or Babylonians. They were were Zoroastrians who, who looked for omens and prophecies in the stars. So the Jewish religious leaders ignored the Messiah. But here, these pagan astrologers come and bow down to the king of the Jews because what they realize is that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews. He's the king of all nations. All nations. Friends, that's why we're here worshiping Jesus today. Because unless you're Jewish, you and I are part of these nations These Gentiles, these these non-Jews, these people groups that at one time were cut off from the good news of God and his salvation. But Jesus has come to bring salvation to people of every tribe and tongue and nation. That's why we're worshiping here today. And that's why we exist as a church. Because Jesus is the rightful king of Fredonia and Dunkirk and Chautauqua County, but he is also the rightful king of every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. Jesus came to bring us joy and he came to bring joy to the world. This is why we have mission partners all over. We have mission partners here locally in Chautauqua County. We have mission partners er, working with Urban Impact in Pittsburgh. We have mission partners around the world working in Russia and Dublin. This This is why we partner with organizations like Compassion International that are taking the message and the mercy of Jesus to to some of the neediest places on earth. We're going to talk about this at the end of the service, but this is why at Christmas Eve, we're taking up our Christmas Eve offering to send to compassion because we want to funnel the blessings that God has given us to the places of greatest need around the world so that people all over the world can experience the joy and the hope that Jesus brings and so that Jesus is worshiped as the king who brings life to every tribe and tongue and nation. He is the rightful king of the nations. 
And he is the rightful king of our lives. He is the king who is worthy of our worship. And so I just want to ask you honestly today, what will you worship? What will you worship? I'm not asking will you to go to church. I'm not asking will you sing the songs. I'm not asking will you listen to the guy talk up here. I'm not asking will you give your money. I'm asking what will you worship. All those things are part of worship, but you can do those things without actually worshiping. I'm asking, what is the ultimate thing in your life? What is the center of gravity around which your life revolves? What is that thing that lights the fuse of joy and causes an explosion of joy in your life? What is that thing that you're willing to lose everything for? Because whatever it is, that is what you worship. So you can even call yourself a Christian, but in actuality, something else can be the center of your life. Your work can be the center of your life. Your hobbies can be the center of your life. Your family can be the center of your life. Your reputation can be the center of your life. The question is, what will you worship? Maybe you don't even consider yourself a religious person, but we all worship something. We all have some center of gravity in our lives. This is an original with me. This comes from an author named David Foster Wallace. Uh, if you don't know who David Foster Wallace was, he was, he was a novelist. He was also an agnostic, certainly not a Christian by anyone's definition. But he gave a speech in which he said this. Listen to what he says. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Man, if I'm honest, that's the way that sometimes I live my life. That's the way that so many of us live our lives. We just kind of slip gradually into worshiping these false gods. We think, if I can just have these things, if I can have this money, if I can have this job, if I can have this status, if I can have this relationship, then I will finally be happy. But it never works. It's never enough. And the reason I find David Foster Wallace's words so haunting is because here was a guy who rejected the one true God and yet who knew every other God would end up killing him. And three years after he gave this speech, he went into his garage and hung himself. Friends, you and I will worship something. So what will we worship? Because every other king, 
Everything else that becomes ultimate in our lives will eventually end up killing us. That's what false kings do. So the question is not, will you worship? The question is, who will you worship? What will be ultimate in our lives? Will we worship a king who kills us? Or will we worship the king who came to give us life? Because this is what makes Jesus different from every other king. Every other king demands your allegiance. And they promise these things. And over time, they take more and more and they give less and less until they eventually destroy you. But Jesus is the exact opposite. Jesus is not the king who came to take from us. He is the king who gives to us. The true king doesn't kill us. The true king, 33 years after this, was killed for us. The true king laid down his rights and his privilege and his comfort and his very life for his people. The true king was born so that he could die in our place and give us eternal life in him. The true king, the scriptures tell us, experienced unspeakable sorrow. He died under the curse of God and man, bearing the punishment that our sins deserve. Why? So that, so that we could have the eternal joy of having our sins forgiven and no condemnation and coming into his family and becoming children of God. So the question for all of us today is how will we respond to him? Will we hate him like Herod? Will we ignore him like the religious leaders or will we worship him like the wise men? We're going to pray here, and then we're going to sing. And, and as we sing, let's not just do some perfunctory religious ritual. Let's worship him with all that is in us. Worship him as an explosion of joy, the king who has come to bring joy into our sorrow, the king who has come to bring hope into our despair, the king who has come to bring light into our darkness. Let's worship the king who was born and lived and died and rose again. To give us life. Let's pray. Father, I confess that so often my heart is cold, is numb, is apathetic about you. I confess that often I, I want to worship other things. I want to find my happiness and my joy in other things. I think these other false kings and these other false gods will bring me true meaning and happiness and life and light and joy. Father, we all have these things. We have these false kings, these false gods that call for our worship and that, that promise us life. But the fact is that, that they're never enough and they take more and more and they give less and less and they eventually take it all from us. So Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us to be aware where that's happening in our lives. I pray that you would help us to be conscious of that. But God, I also thank you for your forgiveness. <laughs> that you're not a God who, who makes us stay there, but you welcome us back to you. You say, come to Jesus, come to the King, receive forgiveness, receive grace, and come back home. And so Lord, I pray that we would do that. And I pray that your grace and your love and your mercy would would create an explosion of joy in our hearts. Not, not only as we sing, but as we go throughout this week in the midst of a world filled with sadness and sorrow, would you, would you give us the joy of your presence? 
Would you help us to live in the light and the joy that God is with us? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you guys so much for being here. Going to send you out with a benediction. Uh, this passage is actually from Revelation 5, and it's, it's this vision that the Apostle John had of people of every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping around the throne of the Lamb. And then he says, this is what every creature in heaven and on, on, and on the earth and under the earth says about Jesus. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Have a great week.